Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. You can't go anywhere today without hearing the term artificial intelligence. Governments, industry, and startups are thinking through how to build, leverage, and harness AI on a daily basis. But what really is AI? And how do you build an AI-first company? What's overhyped about AI? And, and what's underhyped? These are some of the topics that aren't talked about nearly enough and in, in, with enough detail in society today. We answered these questions and more today with Ash Fontana, Managing Director of Zeta Venture Partners. Ash has built a career building and investing in startups. He was an early and senior member of AngelList, and since joining Zeta, he's been in generational AI-first companies like Canva, Invenia, and more. Ash, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, you know, Ash, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on today. We, uh, we're going to talk about your new book, you know, this time, The AI First Company, uh, in which you outline tactics and strategies, you know, for how to compete and win with AI. But before we dive in too deeply, I want to start with the first passage of your book. It, it really resonated with me. You outlined that intelligence is what makes humans unique compared to all other species. Maybe we can start the conversation by how you define intelligence and set the framework for how we should think about intelligence in this conversation. Yeah, I define intelligence as the ability to learn and you know, high intelligence as the ability to learn fast. That's where the question of degree comes in. Now, I can talk for a really long time about what that means in the context of humans learning in their environment to survive in that environment you know, learning with each other, all that sort of stuff. But it's very easy to um, think about that in the context of business, which is, you know, you have an understanding of the world and the problem you're trying to solve in your industry, your little commercial or industrial world when you come into it. But things change. And if you don't learn as things change, your thing that you're, you brought into the world originally, your product, um, won't match reality of demand. So that's why there's an imperative to learn. And that's why there's um, an imperative to get intelligence in whatever way you can. And these days, that's often through artificial intelligence. Yeah. And you framed AI, interestingly, as the tool for decision-making leverage. So to set context, I think for our, for our audience, you know, we were first in an era of physical leverage, right? Mm -hmm. Intellectual leverage and now decision-making leverage. So expand upon each one of those concepts and maybe explain to us, you know, the chronology or the lineage of, you know, how we really go from physical to intellectual to, to decision-making leverage. Yeah, I, um, I start the book with the notion that humans are tool-making animals, um, to quote Charles Babbage. And that is we're constantly looking for ways to get more from less or to get around things um, in a way that we just can't naturally do. And so the way we originally did that uh, was by inventing tools that gave us leverage over our physical environment to reach further than we could reach with our arms or capture something that was heavier than we could lift ourselves. So ropes and spears and traps and things like that. Um, and that whole era I call sort of the era of technology as physical levers um, or tool building um, to get physical leverage. And if you think about it, it's not just ropes and traps and spears. Um, it's even the little gears in 
you know, for example, a, uh, a machine in a factory, a riveting machine or um, a nail gun or something like that. So the, the era of tool making being to build physical leverage is actually very, very long from, you know, 60 or more thousand years ago until, the, until and including the Industrial Revolution. Then after the Industrial Revolution, you know, we got to the point where we were trying to understand so many different factors of production, you know, how many inputs we had, how many kilograms of steel led to how many rivets. And these numbers started getting bigger than we could hold in our own heads. So we needed intellectual leverage. We needed tools that could allow us to do more than we could, calculate more than we could in our own head. And that's when we developed computers. And that was the era, you know, around, um, in many ways, you could say, when Ada Lovelace started thinking about computer programming, um, even before she had a computer to program on. And when we started building computers, when IBM started building computers, when Turing started thinking about more advanced forms of computers, and von Neumann um, invented uh, the computer. So that gave us an ability to calculate stuff faster. Now I'll get to the third era of tool building, which I think is um, using computers to give us leverage over time. So remember we have physical leverage over, over space, physical leverage, leverage over intellectual matters in our mind, and then leverage over time. And that's what AI lets you do. It lets you see around the corner. It lets you make a better decision today based on a better, more likely view of what tomorrow is gonna look like. And, and what are the imperatives this drives, right? So both from a social perspective, a business perspective, maybe another way to think about this is, you know, how should we think about what decision-making leverage enables for society and for business? Yeah, if you think about it, we all want to know something that's just around the corner. Um, you know, if we're in the fashion industry, we want to know what trends are going to be going to be good. But let's bring it down to something that's, um, frankly, probably more impactful in terms of letting us survive on this planet for longer. You know, if we're able to predict things like what the weather's going to be like a little bit better, we can decide what to plant. You know, sometimes when you plant a crop, if, if the weather doesn't go your way, all of the resources you put into growing that crop are, are wasted. And also, by the way, you don't have any food to eat. If we get better at thinking about where we need to put electricity on the grid, we won't waste it. Because once you produce electricity, it has to go somewhere. The electrons have to move. And if you put it in the wrong part of the grid, unless you happen to have massive batteries there or capacitors, you have to sink it into the ocean. And so being able to see around the corner a little bit better, where are we going to need that energy? What food are we going to need? What food are we going to be able to grow? Will allow us to, again, do more with less, which is what leverage is, doing more with less. So I think there's a societal imperative to develop these technologies so we waste less and so we have what we need. Um, you know, from a business perspective, you can think about it the same way. On the waste less side, it's about automating more so you can reduce the cost of production. That's on the supply side, on the waste side. On the getting more from less side, um, again, it's about seeing around the corner and predicting demand in, a, in this most simple sense. 
So let's get into Ash, you know, what is an AI first company, right? Define that term for us and, and explain that a bit more to us. It's a company that gets that imperative. It gets the imperative that if they're not wasting less, they're going to be producing at a higher cost of production. Or if they're not seeing around the corner more, another competitor is going to see around the corner before them and produce something that meets the market earlier. It's a company that gets the imperative to be intelligent, to learn fast in order to be able to adapt to a changing world. That's what an AI first company is. It, it, it gets the imperative that we were just talking about. Now, very pragmatically, what that means, and I think this was the missing piece in the discussion, the vocabulary, the frameworks, the strategic concepts available to people out there today and why I wrote this book, it, it means that you put AI at the start of every conversation, conversations about what products you're going to build, how you're going to price them, what people you're going to hire to build them, what policy initiatives you need to consider when you're building them in, your society, in terms of societal matters and regulatory matters, and how you're going to put that product out in the world, how you're going to market it. And AI-first companies get that in all of those conversations about all of those matters. There's someone in the room, or ideally everyone in the room, who's asking questions like, well, if we price it this way, is that going to prevent us from gathering the data we need to be smarter? If we build the product this way, are we missing an opportunity to gather a data set from our customers? It's putting a consideration of AI and building these data learning effects, which are behind AI in every conversation. Yeah, when you think about the, one of the interesting parts of the book that, um, that I recollect was when you think about kind of the archetype, you know, of how a company can be an AI first company, at a categorical level, you know, it's not all that dissimilar. You're thinking about strategies, tactics, you know, what are the metrics you're measuring? Not all that different than, you know, how we think about building, you know, normal technology businesses, I'll say non-AI businesses. Of course, when you get into the details, right, very different. And, and I think the first prong of that, which stuck out to me, was strategy and what creates competitive advantages. You just mentioned it, data learning effects, right? I think that has a, that has a core implication and how you think about strategy and what creates competitive advantage. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. What is a data learning effect and how do these help companies build competitive advantages when you're building an AI first company? Yeah, data learning effects are the big idea in the book and the thing to understand. Now, of course, if it was so easy to describe in 30 seconds, I would have just done that and put it out there on Twitter or something and not written a book about it. So I'll do my best, but I just say that so as to flag, if people want more illustrations, more visual ways to understand this, a better explanation, it's all there for you in the book. Um, but a data learning effect is a new type of competitive advantage that's more powerful, I contend, than any other type of competitive advantage out there and that you build by being an AI first company. And remember, anyone can be an AI first company. You don't have to start that way. What it is, itself is it's the automatic compounding of information and so working backwards first to have a data learning effect you need a critical mass of data sometimes that's a lot sometimes that's a little bit from which using certain capabilities you can process into information because zeros and ones don't really help you make a decision but um 
attributes in a table and things that describe things are information you can use to make a decision. And then the third and crucial part of building a data learning effect or the third and crucial component of it is a self-learning system, a system that gathers that information and learns something over time. Usually that's a machine learning system that learns, all right, everyone with this attribute has a propensity to buy this product or Every time we notice this temperature was used in the oven at this part of the production line, we see this defect at that part of the production line. So let's change the temperature and see what happens next time. And they learn. And you know these systems make predictions and learn if their predictions are wrong by putting them out in the world or right by putting them out in the world. So a data learning effect is really powerful. It's a new type of competitive advantage, different to a network effect economies of scale, any brands, any of these other things were traditionally thought of as giving us an advantage over others. And it's the automatic compounding of information. And it requires those three things, critical mass of data, capabilities to process it into information and a system that automatically, you know, usually on a computer learns over that information. Yeah. You, you've invested in a number of companies that, that obviously have harnessed data learning uh, effects. And maybe you can illustrate that theoretical concept in a, in a more pragmatic way for the audience from the perspective you know, of companies that you've invested in. So give us an example or two you know, of an actual kind of real life business. You know, folks can kind of watch this academic concept onto in, in practice to get a better sense you know, of how data learning effects actually you know, materialize in the real world. Yeah, for sure. I'll give a really simple example that you know we would face and use every day. So a company called Focal Systems, I was the first institutional investor in the company and sat on the board for a long time. Um, so just disclosing that, they put cameras in grocery stores. And as they see images from those cameras, these cameras are just pointing at the shelf. They can learn when a product's in stock or out of stock. And what is that product? Is that product pasta or is it rice? And they learn that by saying to the people at the back of the store, hey, this is out of stock. And so that person, instead of once a day going through the aisles at 4 a.m. and doing all of this on a clipboard, gets a quick alert, an alert they can quickly action and go, all right, pasta's out of stock. I'll put pasta back on the shelf. And, you know, the large percentage of the time the system is right, the person confirms it, and then the camera sees, all right, there's pasta back on the shelf that we were right in predicting the pasta was that thing that didn't exist on the shelf was a box pasta. Um, but if it's wrong, which is barely ever wrong, then the human can correct that and the system can learn, huh, that wasn't a box of pasta, that was a box of, you know, ice cream cones or something else. And so next time it sees something, those parameters, that shape, those colors, it says ice cream cones are out of stock, not pasta. Um, so uh, one, as you can tell, I'm Italian and completely obsessed with gelato and pasta. And two, um, you can see how a visual system can learn um, by just looking whether things are there or not there, and then occasionally having a computer tell them what was or wasn't there. If, if you're a business owner today, and that's, that's a really helpful example to hear because you can start, it starts kind of 
churning the juices for you know application, of course, to your industry, your business, et cetera. If you were a business owner today, what, what are the newest trends in AI that capture your attention, right? Where's the low-hanging fruit? You've seen businesses take advantage of maybe, maybe what are the most common mistakes you see business owners make? How might you think about you know, how, to, you know, how to harness AI in your actual business you know, from a day-to-day pragmatic basis today? Yeah, so to answer the first part of your question briefly, because I think the second part of your question is really important, um, there are a lot of amazing things going on. And I think if you're trying to solve a problem that probably needs um, to look at something in the real world, like look at something through a camera or listen to something or generally perceive something in the real world, you'll probably be able to make a lot of headroom solving that with AI. Um, now, increasingly, if you're trying to solve a problem that involves understanding very large chunks of text, text in a marketing document, in a contract or whatnot, increasingly, there's very promising um, systems that you can use, pre-trained systems that you don't have to spend a lot of money developing and spinning up that can help you understand things like how many times is this clause exist in all the contracts we've signed with our vendors or um, where is this notion, this theme um, in all of our marketing material, uh, this brand theme or something like that. So that's increasingly promising. However, I would like to just focus on the second part of your question, which are common pitfalls. And there are many, right? But one is spending a lot of time organizing data before just trying to run an AI model on the data you already have. Yeah. Two, thinking that you need to automatically jump to a really advanced form of AI when often a very simple form of AI, like a statistical model, can work really well. And three, thinking that you have to run the model over many, many years of data on some big cloud-based computing system or whatnot to get, a, to get an inkling of whether AI is going to be relevant in solving your problem. These are all pitfalls I see every day. And um, it's a real shame because, you know, there's a lot out there you can experiment with very cheaply and you can get very far with very simple methods and not much data. Yeah. Let's, let's assume you nailed the playbook, right? From strategy to capital allocation, you know, the measurement, you, you have quite a bit in your book on, you know, metrics and such, which we'll probably pass mm-hmm. over today. But let's say you nailed the playbook, right? Uh, talk a little bit more, Ash, about what's the second act for companies. And, w- and what I mean by that is, what are the implications of this positioning? So not, not just from a competitive advantage perspective, right? We, we kind of spoke about that. Uh, but what are the kinds of things that empowers in your business? Are you, you know, able to transform your business model faster, build new products? Like, how do you think about kind of that second act for businesses? Because I think what's interesting for a lot of founders, investors, et cetera, that are listening to this is not just the first dimension of thinking, right? Which is you can have an advantage today in your industry or have a better, faster, cheaper product, but it's really this compounding effect when you think building a business over 20, you know, 30, 50 years. So how might you think about that and, and kind of what, you know, what this empowers from a second act perspective? Yeah, and this is the whole last chapter of the book, which is so what? So what, and as you well put it, what are the second order effects of being able to make something cheaper because you've automated some crucial part of the process or being able to predict demand better because you've been able to see around the corner a bit better. And this is where I get into applying 
all the types of competitive advantage people know, things like um, standardizing around a protocol, like standardization in industry and controlling that, or disruption theory or aggregation theory, or um, being, being a price leader. I get into all these things that people already think about when they think about their business strategy and talk about the AI first version of them, which is, you know, if you can automate something, you will, might be able to produce it, automate some crucial part of the production process. You might be able to produce it cheaper and therefore you might be able to sell it at a lower price. And therefore you might be able to disrupt <clears throat> incumbents by selling something at a fraction of the cost. Okay, but also in the meantime, while gathering more customers because your product's cheaper than all the competitors' products, you actually gather more data. And then with more data, you can learn more, your systems that figured out how to automate some crucial part of the production process get even better. And then you automate more and the product gets cheaper and you capture more of the market and so on and so forth. So that's just one example of what I call AI-first disruption, um, borrowing a lot from Clayton Christensen's good work there. Um, but there's a version of this around aggregating data in industries. And there are all these secondary flywheels, so to speak, all these second order effects of being able to automate one thing or predict one thing that actually allow you to pursue another strategy, cost leadership, standardization, et cetera, that also allow you to gather more data that reinforce the core data learning effect. Yeah. We, we've talked a lot about the advantages you know, of AI and kind of the promise of AI in, in, in business and enterprise. Uh, I'm curious what you think is the most overhyped part you know, about AI today. Uh, and maybe a corollary to that question also is what's, what's underhyped, right? What are we not talking you know, enough about uh, when we're generally framing you know, AI and, and technology and society, et cetera? How do you think about what's overhyped and what's underhyped? Yeah, very generally, I think what's overhyped is anything around using AI to make a decision for you. And what's underhyped is anything around using AI to perceive something for you. Okay. And so I would say, you know, if you're relying on AI to understand the core mechanics of a system, understand why the liver does processes this thing into that thing, or understand why, you know, stock prices trade in this way, you know, you're really trying to understand a very complex system and you're really trying to know the causes of your effects. And we, we don't even know the causes of these things, even though we've studied the mechanics of these systems, of biological systems, economic systems for a really long time. And unfortunately, this applies to a lot of environmental systems. We just don't understand things like wildfires and, and other factors that are sort of the consequence of or leading to or involved in climate change. And so... It's, it's probably a little overhyped thinking that we can use AI as it is today to solve those problems. Yeah, tell us a little bit more. I mean, Ash, you're, obviously you're investing in AI first companies. You see, you know, lords and lords of companies, right? Trying to absorb that DNA, tackle problems with AI. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to kind of double click on what you were just saying. What are the most ap interesting applications, you know, you're seeing today of how AI is being leveraged? And, and maybe not from a you know, business model perspective necessarily, or what's, you know, going to be the most valuable company, um, mm -hmm. but more so just, you know, from a, from an interest perspective, you know, the application of this kind of AI first model that, that you're seeing mm -hmm. in industry today. 
Yeah, I'm personally um, really interested in and looking to support and also professionally, like from a research perspective, um, looking for companies that one, just build the tools and infrastructure to build AI, but two, help people communicate better. And this can be communication, you know, orally, as in if I've got a really strong accent, maybe help me just tone it down a little bit with some sort of self-learning system so that the other person can understand it better. Um, or uh, visually, if I'm trying to draw a chart, maybe I can just type out what I want that chart to look like. You know, I want a flow chart that has 10 boxes with arrows going between them and whatnot. And then it just does it rather than having to sit there and tediously do that for an hour in PowerPoint. Or if I want to make something just more beautiful um, and more engaging, just uh, tell me what colors to use. You know, don't put purple with brown, put purple with green. Um, those sorts of things can be really, really cool and really help us, especially in this age where we're less able to communicate in person and thus have sort of lower bandwidth in a way conversations with each other, things that help people communicate their ideas better, uh, things that I think would have lots of sort of positive externalities in the world, help us get business done quicker, help us just understand each other better. Yeah, I, li I like that framing around communication, especially the point around externalities. One, one of the things I think about when it comes to externalities and this is kind of a final question from my side is, is the philosophy of AI, right? So big, broad question. We're not going to kind of solve the world's problems you know, in, in this question. But when you talk about externalities, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind immediately um, is this, is this problem called the trolley problem, right? Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. You know, a lot, you know, for our viewers benefit, I'll just kind of frame it. Uh, but the trolley problem basically goes like this. You know, you see a trolley coming down a railroad and you have the ability you know, to pull the lever and steer it into a certain direction, right? Whichever way you steer, unfortunately, there's gonna be a bad consequence, um, but it basically you know, puts you in the driver's seat to make that moral decision. The debate is interesting in philosophy and often used because it's a framework or you know, a mechanism to unearth you know, people's moral compasses, right? How do you value things? You know, how do you think about things? How do you think about trade-offs, you know, et cetera? One of the things I think a lot about, you know, on the externality side with AI is what's the philosophical compass that you think makes sense to apply to AI? And, and you know, personally, from your perspective as an AI optimist, do you ever get concerned, you know, that a handful of programmers are effectively going to codify, you know, a value system of sorts, you know, in the products and services we leverage going forward? It's something that I know a lot of our viewers spend, you know, a lot of time thinking of, which is, you know, it's, it's incredible to have, you know, all the AI applications that are going to be coming through, you know, but as technology and value creation, you know, goes to a smaller and smaller subset of folks, given that there's so much leverage with technology, is there an opposite, is there an equal and opposite concern, you know, with, with codification of, of value systems, et cetera, in the products and services that become ubiquitous in society? Yeah, there is, um, until there's not, basically. And it's interesting you brought up the trolley problem because effectively it's a consequentialist thought experiment as in, you know, it's an experiment that gets you to think about the relative goodness or badness of, an, of a consequence of an outcome. Yep. And the thing about AI models are, is they're just code until they're not. 
and as in until they manifest themselves in the physical world, in the physical world, as in you could develop the best system in the world to identify people that a certain government wants to, wants to terminate. But if you never connect it up to a weapon system, it's never going to be a problem. Um, or if you have restrictions on that, to just go to the most extreme example. That, and the point is, if it doesn't have a manifestation in the physical world, it's arguably not dangerous. Now, and that's the point, as in, I do worry about people being able to program certain systems that could do certain things, but I don't because ultimately, you know, if we have functioning governments and people with morals around these systems and responsible for the instantiation of them in the physical world, then we won't have a problem. Um, but that's a huge if. I mean, we've had functioning governments, arguably more or less functioning over time. And we've had people around these systems with arguably better or worse moral compasses. Um, and these systems being other forms of technology like guns, and they've been used for terrible purposes in the past really horrible purposes. So, you know, we really have to think about who are we putting around and what around these systems, what laws are we putting around these systems, what constraints are we putting around these systems? And it's not okay to just let people run wild with this stuff and develop them in whatever way they want and instantiate them more importantly in the physical world and put them into the physical world, connect them to other systems like a moving vehicle in whatever way they want. It's not okay. We've got to have a huge amount of regulation around um, how these things are used, just like we have regulation around how everything's used from you know, a knife to a gun um, to you know, chemicals in our food. We have lots of regulation around that stuff. And I think the, the work that needs to be done is really getting everyone who has the power to make these rules and control these things up to speed on what AI, the AI first century really is all about. Um, Ash, as a final question, I want to bring in Kavita Gupta from the FinTech TV team, um, you know, to, to, to ask a, a question. Kavita, you've been listening in on the conversation, you know, with Ash and I. What's your conversation for, uh, what's your question for him rather, you know, on, on AI and AI first? Um, first of all, amazing conversation, guys. Thank you so much. Um, I'm actually, the the conversation has already gone so much in depth. I'm going to take a lighter note here, though it has its own very serious uh, communication and conversation around it. Um, people have been talking about a lot about diversity, Ash, diversity with respect to founders, with respect to investments. And the way I look at it as a female investor and a, a founder is the conversation is about uh, number of women founders in the space, number of women who are easily able to raise the money and coming from various backgrounds and not necessarily within the US. So from your personal experience, whether it's from Zera Ventures or across the places as you're looking, how do you maintain that you want to go into diversity, but you also want to invest in the best product and the best founder, that balance, which sometimes mm. people forget in the conversation from each side, how do you go to find that balance? You know what? Firstly, it's a choice. You know, you either choose to make a real effort to find people from different backgrounds building these technologies or you don't. And I've made that choice over and over again by who I've hired and how we find companies. 
So firstly, it's a choice. However, um, to sort of lighten it a bit, I've actually found if you just focus on as much as possible on real problems and real research, it's not hard to find um, founders from all sorts of backgrounds building these technologies. As in, if you're looking all around the world, as I do, I'm a global investor. I don't live in any one place and I don't look for companies to support in any one place. If you look all around the world, you find people solving problems that you know, don't just exist in, in parts of the US. Um, so you look, you look for people, um, sorry, you're looking in places where people are solving problems around real societal issues and real issues of discrimination against people who are in minorities or real issues of food supply and food safety or real issues of societal organization and governance. So if you just look in all these other places with all of these different constraints, economic constraints and other governmental constraints, you find people solving different problems with those constraints. Um, and then the other thing, if you're looking to apply real research, like real cutting edge machine learning research, you know, frankly, that's happening more across Europe, in all sorts of countries in Europe and in the UK than it is in the US. That's not an opinion, they're the numbers. There's more research that comes out of um, countries outside the US than inside the US at this point. And also a lot of people producing the research in the US are not from the US. Um, so, you know, if you just look at the numbers, that's the case. And then in my experience, that's the case, which again is why I look at so many companies outside the US. I've got a team in the US and all that sort of stuff for sure, but um, that's not where I spend my time. And therefore I haven't found it to be a problem. Ash, this was, this was awesome. You know, thanks so much for taking the time and um, really encourage, you know, our, our audience to, to check out the book and, and dig in. You know, I think it's, it's an interesting paradigm we're going through right now um, in a shift, you know, in which AI is really taking, you know, not a side angle or an augmentation angle in business, but really a core, you know, core angle in how the next generation of companies are built. It's a, it's a vernacular and a language, you know, that if you don't understand, even at a non-technical level, um, you know, I imagine over the next decade or two, it's actually going to be challenging to participate in the business world. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing your insights. And, um, you know, would love to have you back on, you know, again, to, to dive deep into these topics. Thank you, Ramin.